So in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're reading from verse, I'm reading from verse 3 through verse 7. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no one may, that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. Well, I was planning on going all the way uh, to verse 10, but as I worked on it, uh, just so much came to me, and I wanted to, to bring out um, some of the things that were on my heart. But first, I, I just want to remind us that our brother Sezo and Don, uh, their the, passing and the services that... Uh, celebrated their lives was just so special these last two weeks. And it reminds us back in chapter 5, verse 10, that life is short and that we'll all give an account of ourselves to God. We'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And I think part of this passage that we're working through is, is the zeal of Paul with that in the back of his mind, knowing that even though he had persecuted and killed Christians, after he saw the risen Lord Jesus, he was going to give it everything, all he had, all for Jesus. So I entitled the message today, All for Jesus. In our passage today, uh, Paul seemed to be under this compulsion to explain the difference between his team and the false apostles, the false teachers. And Paul did not like to boast. Um, and he knew, he, he specifies in chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, that it's ungodly to boast in anything but the Lord. But he needed to help the Corinthians to see his heart and not the outward appearances. We're often tempted to be impressed by the way things appear, by, uh, by the world's perspective, but it's the heart that matters to God and therefore should matter to us as well. Paul wanted them to understand his heart and that of his ministry team for, for the, their sake, for the gospel to be clear to them, that they would understand the difference between the gospel that the false prophets and false teachers were, were proclaiming and his message of the true gospel of grace. And he starts out, verse 3, with the word we, which is, is his ministry team. Paul's not just talking about himself. Wherever he goes, he, he has a team working with him, and they all share the same heart. Verse 3 again, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. So in these verses um, this week and next week, Paul's concluding kind of his defense of his ministry because of the attacks of the false teachers, their, 
they're pointing out that he wasn't with the 12 and he's teaching grace. Well, grace can be abused and all the different angles that the false teachers were trying to, to put Paul down and make them look on the outside of Paul and not his heart. So he's sharing what his team had endured because of their love for Jesus and their love for the church. That's his defense. He wasn't just boasting in himself, but he was compelled to point out the difference between his ministry and these false teachers. And it had to be spelled out because the Corinthians just weren't mature enough to discern it. The Corinthians were, were looking at the outward appearance. Sure, these other guys are more eloquent. Sure, these other guys have look more stately and, and regal, but that's not what matters. What matters is the heart. And this, when I read this passage, it, I, I literally started crying because of the hardness of hearts in some congregations. Now, it's certainly not true in this fellowship, but I don't want anybody to get that idea because you all have been such a blessing to me and to one another. I mean, the, the memorial services that we had, if there was one thing that stood out, it's how much you all are willing to give in times of need, how much you're willing to serve one another in love. Give of your time and your, your finances and, and your energy to help the people in need. It's just been a huge blessing to me. But I know the painful rejection um, that some pastors have because I've witnessed it. I've, I've witnessed it in other churches and I have heard the broken hearts of some pastors. One pastor and his wife came here for about six months. Um, he and his wife were just, uh, they gave it all to their little church. It was small church, so they had additional jobs. So they both worked full time to make ends meet and trying to give the flock their time, their love, their thoughtful counsel, the sincere milk of the word. And while they're raising their family and working full time, it was, it's a, it was so demanding. And yet the congregation that they pastored never thought they were good enough. And it was so devastating for that couple that they lost the desire to shepherd another congregation. And praise God, they're, they're now restored and they're back in ministry and doing fantastic. But this happens all the time. I was in fellowship with another pastor years ago here in Sedona who was scarred from his last congregation. After he just poured his heart out to them and served them with his, all his energy, they fired him. And he was met with the present congregation with a little more kindness, but really an apathy towards the message that he shared. And he felt he was getting nowhere, so he retired. And then the, for the rest of his life, he's passed on, now he's with the Lord. He served filling in for pastors when they were on vacation in the community where he retired to. Lifeway Research asked us to consider for a moment the fact that almost every task a pastor has is by nature complex. Studying for sermons, giving marital advice, providing leadership to volunteer organizations, having budget responsibility, helping those who are grieving, etc., etc. The diverse complexity alone is taxing. 
but the demands on a pastor required them to quickly switch between different complex tasks that require completely different knowledge, skills, and abilities. This list of tasks for a pastor never ends. There's always another complex task to switch to and pour your heart into. A congregation's needs and demands and desires seem to never end and are often ill-timed. Yet, few pastors quit. Now, I know in past, we've talked about how many leave the ministry, but re recent surveys in the last 10, 15 years, are, that is totally changing. Um, in fact, it's so, so different now that uh, the pastors rarely leave. In fact, each year, only about 1% of pastors retire before uh, they reach retirement age, before they end their, their ministry at a church. For those who are visiting or online, I can tell you what's made a great difference here, for which I'm very grateful. The only thing that's kept me here for 21 years, ministering to this congregation. First and most important is a dedication to the Holy Spirit, to let him work in us, and the discipline to take time to study the word. But next, I would say it is a team of godly elders who meet the qualifications of Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy 3. And a godly wife who's willing to work with women is a huge plus. And finally, four weeks a year vacation with an additional four-week sabbatical every five years is very helpful as well. <laughs> Every time I come back, they say, you should go away more. <laughs> no, because they can see the difference. The renewed vigor, the new zeal, the fresh zeal. But not only has all the above made it possible in, to endure, but it has made it a joy. And that does not mean it is easy. <laughs> so when young men... Uh, think talk about ministry I always encourage them to pray and I discourage them by telling them if you can do anything else do it because if you are called you will not be satisfied doing anything else and that's why pastors usually do not leave the ministry they sometimes will leave a, a congregation and go to another congregation or another field of ministry or another position in ministry. But most endure because they're called. Like the Apostle Paul, we strive to put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found in our ministry. And you can be sure there's always someone to find fault. <laughs> Some people think a critical spirit is the gift of the spirit. <laughs> Ministers will not please everyone, nor should they. They should always strive to please the Lord. An audience, so I say an audience of one. Just worry about the audience of one. No matter what we do, someone's going to be dissatisfied because we all have unique convictions, and many of which are inconsequential to the gospel but are some people's favorite hobby horse, like the age of the earth, or when Christ is gonna return, or, or Calvinism versus Arminianism, or interpretation of Revelation, or who are the Nephilim, or whatever, on and on. 
but we need to focus on one thing. Uh, isn't it amazing how the calls to worship always seem to line up with the message, and we never coordinate ahead of time. So what God put on Ed's heart is exactly what I'm trying to say. It's all about Jesus. We're told by the apostle in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So how can the... The focus is how can we surrender more fully to him? How can we die to ourselves and let him be our life? How can we be his instrument to point others to him, that minister of reconciliation that we talked about last week? How can we be pleasing to him? Abiding in Christ is our goal. Now, there are many times that things are clear in Scripture and we stand on those truths. But on the, on the abstract and undefined, we should hold our own opinions, but listen to others and, and hear from them why they have a different opinion. Look at the scriptures that they're referring to. But if we spend all our time there, we miss the essential purpose of our lives. It's not about being right and others being wrong. It's about being a living sacrifice to let the love of Christ minister to others through us. What applies to pastors has, of course, an application to all believers because, as Peter said, we are all ministers. We should all strive to put obstacles aside that might interfere with someone hearing the gospel. That doesn't mean we compromise the truth or we agree with opinions that contradict in Scripture, but instead of arguing... Get back to Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Tell your testimony. Talk about what God's done in your life lately. Our tendency to push back is often a sign of our ego feeling hurt. Represent Jesus in his love. Just keep coming back to him and how he loves us and can save our souls. Clarify any misunderstanding they might have about scripture, sure, but there's no need to argue with those who aren't open to thoughtful debate. The reason we strive not to put an obstacle in anyone's way is that we don't want anyone to, to be hindered on their journey to Christ or their spiritual growth. If I talk about politics, even if I'm factual in my assertions, someone will take offense and may stop listening to the word. They may instead find a church where their political opinion is lauded, which means that that church's emphasis is politics rather than the word of God and being transformed into the likeness of Christ, who, by the way, said almost nothing about politics. Focus on Jesus. When he returns, he's not going to check to see if you have the correct eschatology. Only one thing will matter. Do you know him? Which in biblical terms implies an intimate relationship with him. Did you receive his loving correction and embrace his forgiveness, gift of forgiveness that he offers us or reject him as Lord of your life? Consider the fact that even though Jesus knew Judas was going to betray him, at the Last Supper, he washed his feet and handed the sop to him, which was a sign of friendship. Jesus 
not only did not put an obstacle in Judas' way, he went out of his way to show God's love to him. Love is the defining nature of a person who has been born again. Verse four and five, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. Why do these hardships commend, and that word means to establish or prove, Paul and company to the Corinthian church? It's a declaration of how much they're willing to do because they love that church and love Jesus Christ. It's a declaration of how much they're willing to do because they want to be obedient to him. Thus, it's an example to all believers what they should be willing to do, endure as well. The first in the list is great endurance. Now, I would think that maybe being, out, be, being chased out of towns in numerous towns, being harassed over and over by the Judaizers, one might decide it's just not worth it. Why keep going? But Paul always endured. The list of hardships tells us what things he and his team endured. The things endured come in groups of three. First are general expressions. Afflictions heads the list. We think of afflictions as physical illness, but the Greek word can mean any kind of tribulation. Afflictions are common to all. Amen? So what the word of God declares. It also says that they are good for men and the glory of God and are to be borne with patience by the Lord's people and that they are all directed by God and will result in everlasting good for his people in Christ Jesus. Now, each one of those expressions, if you have the notes, have a set of verses behind them showing where that's true in Scripture. Um, and, and if you get these, if you sign up and get the sermon, those, those Scripture cross-references are right there, and you put your mouse over it, and the verse pops up. So there's, there's 50 in this particular sermon, but it helps you know where, why I'm saying what I'm saying from the Word of God. Those scriptural truths and this whole paragraph that we're studying directly contradict the prosperity gospel, something that's even gaining ground to this day, which teaches that if you're in Christ, you'll be prosperous, you'll be blessed physically, and you'll never get sick. Every description in this passage denies that. The next is hardship. It means to be pressed tightly or compelled. If we walk in the spirit, we are regularly compelled to do things our flesh just does not want to do. But this carries the idea of great pressure. Paul felt the Lord's heart for the churches and for their well-being. We cast our burdens on the Lord, but at times we also feel with him for lost loved ones and for people that we've witnessed to, for people that are suffering and going through things. We share God's heart for them. The next is calamities. It comes from a word that means, again, being in a tight spot. In other words, there seems nowhere to turn. And that can develop into depression if we're not trusting God. 
The next three are more specific examples of what they endured, beatings. Paul was physically attacked by mobs, sometimes being sentenced to be beaten with rods. He was imprisoned in Philippi and Jerusalem and Caesarea and Rome. Prisons in those days were dark, dank cells, usually underground, and no food was provided. It had to be brought by a friend or relative. Disturbances implies instability, confusion, or chaos, often brought about by riots. The final group of the three includes situations that they voluntarily endured. Now, the other ones were forced upon them, but these others, they voluntarily endured. Troubles. Now, all these things sound like troubles, but this word implies very hard physical labor. Sleepless nights, surely brought about by some of the things listed above, but also wondering if you're going to be executed the next morning. Nights of prayer for the churches or, or situations that, that just were so pressing that it was impossible to sleep. Going hungry is the last in Paul's list of things that he endured. Paul had spent his family's wealth serving the Lord. And then he either worked to provide for himself or he relied on the generosity from the churches. But there were times when neither was possible, resulting in a forced fast. All these difficulties were experienced in just the first half of his ministry. When he wrote this letter, he still had nine years to go. When the Holy Spirit draws us to surrender to Christ, our flesh is going to object because it doesn't want to go through these hardships. However, life is full of hardship in whatever path we choose. If we could see in the inside the hearts of the wealthy, the famous, we would see that their life is a little different. We would realize the agony of those we sometimes only envy is, is just as difficult as the things we endure for Jesus. But theirs does not end in a reward. Look at the suicides and overdoses of the rich and famous, and you'll realize it's true. We live in a fallen world, which is why trouble and pain are inevitable. You can choose to go through it with purpose and try to escape as much as possible, but life is not in our control. The end of such a life is to stand before a just and holy God and face your judgment. Or we can suffer with Christ, count it all joy, and realize it's light and momentary compared to the joy that is waiting for us. Verse 6, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, and genuine love. Now Paul turns to tell of the heart of his team, responding to what they have endured. It's not just about him. Remember, it's the we in verse 3. It's about all of them. By purity, that implies being free from defilement, which in this case might refer to false motives that the false teachers were presenting. Knowledge, the Holy Spirit had given them insight into the scriptures. They understood the amazing grace of God that frees us from the law and allows us to serve in newness of life. Patience, a quality of the Spirit 
that will endure testing with faith. This letter itself is an example of the patience of Paul and his team with the Corinthians because of their love for them and for Christ. It's a much needed fruit of the Spirit that we need to live out. The command we saw in 5.16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Our flesh is bound to be offended by comments or arguments from brothers and sisters. Patience does not hold it against them. Just as we would like God and others to be patient with us, so we should be patient with them. Always remember, we are all works in progress. Amen? Only Jesus is perfect. Kindness is also a gift of the Spirit. We're not naturally kind. It means goodness of heart, not just outwardly being amenable. The King James sometimes translates it as gentleness. What a needed attribute in our contentious world of today. In the Holy Spirit, Paul's team didn't operate simply by their impulses or by their intelligence. They were led by the Holy Spirit. Teaching that's not Holy Spirit-led may fascinate the mind, and talented speakers can stir emotions, but the Holy Spirit-inspired teaching is going to change us because it imparts something of Jesus. Renewing our minds and changing our behavior, it's alive. We go away knowing we have met with the Lord. Genuine love, that's God's agape kind of love, which is love that's sincere and sees the value in the one it set its love upon. It's a choice, not a feeling. It sees with eyes of faith and with hope in what God can do in a life. This kind of love does not give up. Now, the word genuine here, genuine love, in this verse is literally not hypocritical. It's not just appearing to love, but love that comes from God and flows through our hearts. Verse 7, by truthful speech and the power of God, with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. By truthful speech, which is literally in the word of truth, if we translate just directly in the word of truth, and it's difficult when we read scripture and we see that word logos, the word, if it's referring to speech or to God's word. In this context, I believe Paul's referring to the gospel according to scriptures. Paul was a master at pointing out the revelation of grace and salvation from the Old Testament. The false teachers tried to mix grace of Christ with the law, and they're still trying to do it to this day. And in the power of God, Paul declared his speech and his preaching wasn't from the wisdom of man, but in demonstration of the power of God. We should see this as the power that touches hearts and wins souls to Christ. The apostles demonstrated miraculous power in the physical realm as well. And we also have the power of God working through us. We've been given authority in Jesus' name. But the apostles had an abundance of miraculous signs to confirm they were the official ones appointed by Jesus to convey the new covenant to us. They had the same Holy Spirit power that we have today, but it was more frequently manifest 
and the miraculous to establish the truth of the message for the founding of the church. God promised through the prophet Joel that this would happen in the latter days. And Peter quoted it at Pentecost. And in part, it's been fulfilled and is even now. And yet the final part of that passage from Joel says the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. So perhaps in the final days to come, signs and wonders will again be frequent to turn the last converts to Christ and to counter the miracles of the Antichrist. And finally, with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left hand. While some see this as the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith, offensive and defensive weapons, I think Paul might have had in mind the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem in the days of Nehemiah. Because of the threat of attack from enemies, the men had to work with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. In a spiritual sense, the apostles and their teams worked with the sword of the spirit to attack the realm of darkness. In the other hand, they had the trowel of the word building up the church. It's a fitting analogy. And we do the same thing. We should always be pushing back the darkness with the word while helping one another in Christ with God's word. The senses of a double duty for perilous conditions that we're in. Just as the enemies of Jerusalem were looking for gaps in the wall or a lack of readiness in the soldiers on the wall, so the enemy of our souls looks for our weaknesses. We defend our position with the word and we're ready to assist when the trumpet is blown, when our brothers or sisters are spiritually attacked. So we can see from our text today that the Christian life is not a bed of roses, but then no life really is. It's a life full of meaning, purpose, joy in the Holy Spirit, freedom from the fear of death, communion with God, now and eternal bliss in the presence of our Savior forever. Why would anyone choose such a hard life? Because Jesus chose to rescue us from this fallen world and died for our sins. The love of Christ compels us. Not only did his sacrifice save us from the power of sin, but he invites us into a love relationship with our Savior a relationship which makes all this world has to offer nothing by comparison. May God work through us to open more and more eyes to the wonder of his love for us and his invitation to truly live. May we, by the grace of God, follow Paul's example, willing to endure hardship to be God's ambassadors to a lost world. Amen? Amen. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song?